0: James. James is getting fired up. I like it. He's getting snarky. Snarky. That means kind of rudely convicting, right? But before we get to James, I want you to imagine something. Uh, We're in a college town. I just met a, a, a young lady from Zimbabwe, yes? Is that right? And she's here for a college conference. We do this a lot in this town. So let's imagine, if you will, a discussion panel. Okay, And this discussion panel uh, consists of Peter, Paul, and I thought someone would go with Mary. No, it's not a discussion panel on 60s rock and roll. Peter, Paul, and John. Good try. Gold star panel, men who personally interacted with the Lord. Two of them walked for three years with the Lord. And we have the opportunity to ask them any question we would like. And my question to you is, how do you operate an iPad? (laughs) Okay, there we go. What's your approach going to be? You get one question. What's your approach going to be? Are you going to take the route of maybe asking about one of those kind of out there passages, right? Like Mark 16. Now remember, Mark, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, most Bible scholars think this is John Mark's recording of Peter's recollection. So think of it as the Gospel of Peter. And at the end of that Gospel, the last chapter, Mark records that the resurrected Christ says that we believers will be able to handle serpents and drink poison and not get hurt. So maybe your question is, hey, Pete, you know, what's up with the snake handling? What's that all about? Or, or maybe you're interested in a more personal angle. Maybe you want to address your question to John, the apostle who Jesus loved, right? And about some personal interaction he had. You know, John, the transfiguration, what was that like? Were you you scared? What what did you feel when that happened? Or, Or maybe you're going to go all theological on us, right? You're going to address your question to Paul, the great theologian, the writer of the, the Roman letter, the deep thinker, right? You say, baptism by the Holy Spirit. What's that all about? Or why am I called and given faith and my neighbor is not? Or the Trinity, you know, help me with this. Or Jesus, fully divine, fully man. Or maybe you're going to ask him about the question before us today. And that is this, what is faith? The foundational principle in Christianity is this, we are saved, we are reconciled by faith and faith alone. You would think this is an important subject, yes? What is it? How do I know I have it? Is it something that's a yes or no, all or nothing proposition, like pregnancy, Or is it something I might have a little of or more of? How much do I need? How do I get more? James is going to address that for us. Would you please stand with me? We're in James chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 14 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 26. And I encourage you to watch for snarkiness. Again, snarky, having a rudely critical tone or manner. I'll point it out for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warm and filled. What good... I'm sorry, I lost my place. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Snarky. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say... You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, snarky, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. That's going to require some explanation. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers, and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Father God, um, we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning. We ask that uh, even through our perspiration and our discomfort and the warmth, uh, that you would get our hearts just to hunger through all that for your word and the truth of it, Father. Uh, Thank you that you have provided this guidance in James, that you tell us what faith is. Father, let us receive it with open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So James starts out by presenting us with this hypothetical individual, and this person says he has faith. Now, what I don't want you to do right away is to get skeptical on me with this word says, all right? I mean, you've got a friend who's notoriously late all the time, and you're about to meet that friend, and your wife asks, what time is Bob going to be there? And you say, well, he says he's going to be there at 6. That's not the kind of says. We're going to accept on face value that this person is a person of faith, is a Christian, that they, that they have faith, that their testimony seems critical. But James adds something here. He says that this faith lacks something. Our boy does not have works. So there is a claim to faith, but this claim is unsupported by any concrete external evidence. Specifically, this person is lacking works. And this is where we start. We have a claim. We have a claim that many in this room claim. Yes, we claim faith. And we have the proposal of a test, the proposal of a gauge of a measurement works. Then, to point us in the right direction, the direction James is about to take us, he asks a question for which he clearly expects the answer is no. Can that faith save him? Husbands, you know this question. You're going to go out on a date with your wife. You emanate from the bedroom fully decked out in your finest clothes. And your wife says, you're not wearing that tonight, are you? An affirmative answer is clearly inappropriate. This is the kind of question James is asking. He expects a no answer. So this question and asking this question in this fashion with the preconceived expectation of a no answer is both provocative and outrageous. Who is James writing to? He's writing to Christians. That's very clear. He's used the word brothers 14 times so far in his letter. He's talked about the testing of your faith. The first verse of chapter 2 he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's safe to assume that his listeners also hold to the doctrine that salvation is by faith and faith alone. Yet James proposes a question that seems to imply that there is a faith that does not save. I want you to picture yourself at the church in Ephesus in June. It's easy, isn't it? No air conditioning, it's a little warm little perspiration. And this letter, which is circulating around the Mediterranean, comes to your church and is being read by one of the elders. And you're listening, right? And early on, James writes, count it all joy in your suffering, and you nod knowingly. And a few verses later, James talks about asking God for wisdom, and it will be given to you, and you you feel encouraged. And then a little bit later, you're challenged. Be doers of the word and not hearers. And and the letter's kind of going on. And you're you're maybe drifting off just a little bit. Not like now. You're all right with me. I know that. But you're drifting off just a little bit. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Wait. What? Point of order, Mr. Chairman. Is James saying that faith alone may not be sufficient? Is this what he's proposing? This is a huge theological issue. No. James is presenting a challenging question not to propose a different way of salvation, but to shape and clarify what, by faith alone, really means. So he's going to give us four illustrations in the following verses. Each illustration is summarized by a statement. His first illustration, summarized in verse 17, so also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The second illustration, the second half of verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. The third illustration, you see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone, and then in verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. Now, I am sure James is a spreadsheet person had spreadsheets existed in the first century. I'm a spreadsheet person. I love this guy. I love the way he breaks down this passage. Watch this. You ready? The first two illustrations are negative. What faith is not. Can we not often explain what something is by also including what it is not? James is going to do that. The second two are positive. In contrast to those negative things, he's going to say, that's not what it is not, but here, here is what faith is. In the first and fourth illustrations, here comes the science fair. No apologies, no regrets. Science fair. The the first and the fourth, he's going to deal with man-word evidence of faith. If I am a person of faith. How does that evidence exhibit itself in how I deal with my fellow man? And in the second and third, the Godward evidence. So here's how we're going to approach this this morning. We're going to take the two manward evidences of faith. The negative and the positive, we're going to look at those. Then we'll take the two Godward ones. And at the end of this, we're going to answer our question. What is faith? So, verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Now skip down to 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So also faith apart from works is dead. So James starts, we will start, by comparing what J.A. Moitier calls this armchair philanthropist to Rahab. Both are facing human need. The philanthropist, a brother or sister, poorly clothed and and hungry, Rahab protecting the two spies who have been sent in to check out Jericho. The unnamed hypothetical brother of verse 16, our armchair philanthropist, rejects, his, or I'm sorry, restricts his remedy for the human need facing him to kind hope and good advice. Off you go. Try not to worry. Do your best to keep warm. Good luck to you. That's his remedy. No sacrifices made, no tangible contribution of any kind. That's what faith is not. Rahab, on the other hand, risks life and limb, and her compassion is both active and personally risky. If you do not recall the story, second chapter of Joshua, the nation of Israel has been freed from their bondage in Egypt. They're entering the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised them. Joshua sends two spies into the stronghold of Jericho to check it out. Military strategy at play here. These two spies are received by this person named Rahab. They come to Rahab's house. And then we learn a little bit about Rahab. Who is this Rahab? Well, she was or had been a prostitute. But in her conversation with these spies, very revealing, she seems incredibly aware of Israel's history and God's intention that Joshua and the nation of Israel is going to take the land of Canaan. Her confession is filled with language and theology straight from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And her mention here in James, but also in Hebrews, and in the ancestry of Jesus in Matthew, clearly shows she is a woman of faith. A Canaanite, but a woman of faith. So the spies come to Rahab's house, and they stay there. Now there's no hint of sexual impropriety, even though she's a prostitute. The house may have been an inn. That's why they stay there. It would certainly be a central location for information. If I'm a spy, that's where I'm going. That's where the information is. And then what happens? The king of Jericho gets wind of the presence of these spies. And he says to Rahab, bring them out. She has already hidden them. But she provides a ruse. I'm trying to be kind. She lies to the king. She says, they're already gone. In fact, if you hurry, king, you can catch them. And off they go. She withheld nothing in protecting these men of God. The king of Jericho knew that the spies had entered her house, but she risked everything, deceiving the king into thinking that they had already left. So what comment does James make regarding both the philanthropist who does nothing, and Rahab who risks everything. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And of Rahab, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith by itself, faith apart from works is dead. Listen. Go to the negative. What is he not saying? He's not saying there's such a faith as a partial faith. A kind of faith. An incomplete faith. There's no such thing as a faith that is just kind of anemic. Or a faith that needs some work. No. There's faith. And there's dead. It either exists. Or it does not. As for the body. Apart from... For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead. So now we're beginning to shape what we're going to ultimately learn in answering our question, what is faith? What what about true faith, genuine faith? First, there must be a unity of faith and works. Faith and works must belong together in a living Christian experience. And specifically, in the example of Rahab, those works manifest themselves in caring for others. So what does this look like today? 21st century America. What does this look like? In the first century, someone like James would have probably traveled a little bit. We know that, of course, Paul and Peter and some of the other apostles did. But for the average person who's reading this letter, their entire life, their entire world is probably going to be spent in a 10-mile radius. So when they see need, it's going to be localized and close, yes? And we see need in our body, in our neighborhood, in our community that we can and should meet material needs, relationship needs. But we live in a far different world than first century Jerusalem, first century Palestine, first century Mediterranean area. We have global information. If James is saying, I am to meet every need that I perceive I can't possibly do that. If I sold everything I had to meet every need I know of around the world, then I would be in need, and Fields would have to sell his house and take care of me. So, so how do we do that? We know that we just don't pat someone on the back and say, best of luck to you. He's told us that. Jesus told the young rich ruler, sell everything and give to the needy. What, how are we to react? We are to react contextually in where we live there are there's global need but we have global means to do that we need to be active we need to push our government who has the ability to meet needs to meet needs we need to participate in non-governmental charitable organizations many of you do we need to push our leaders to do what christ would have us to do so how do i know we're asking the question what is faith do i have it How do I know? Let me ask you some questions. Let me ask me some questions. Am I doing enough? If true faith requires action, am I meeting the requirement? Here's some questions. Am I willing to take personal risk to meet the needs of others? I don't have to sell everything, but am I willing to take a risk to meet needs? Am I willing to make personal sacrifice, time, money, gifts, Am I willing to put pressure on those who have the power to do so much more than I can do alone? Or am I only willing to pat a brother on the back and wish him the best of luck? Those are the questions we ask ourselves. Charles Spurgeon is is credited with saying a lot of things. Here's one of them. If you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it in a sandwich. And I would propose that you may have to pay for the sandwich And you may have to take a risk to get the sandwich to the hungry man. Those of us who live in abundance, we must have an attitude of intolerance towards need. That's what we are called to through our faith. Second example, the God word example, beginning in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone so the first comparison our armchair philanthropist to rahab faced they both faced human need in our current comparison demons and Abraham they both believe One believes and shudders, the other believes and is called a friend of God. There's a faith that produces fear, and there's a faith that produces friendship. So let's begin with the negative. So James brings forth this imaginary interrupter. Our interrupting friend is not hostile to the teaching of James, but he's in need of some clarification. So he addresses someone and says, you have faith and I have works. What is this gentleman saying? The clear implication is that he says God gives people different gifts. Theologically sound premise, yes, certainly. And that one person's gift may be a steadfast faith and that another person's gift may be a propensity for works of mercy. Is he standing on solid ground? So far, so good. there are four places in Scripture that list spiritual gifts. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter. In the list in 1 Corinthians, mercy is listed, works. In the list in Romans, faith is listed. He's saying this. We all have different gifts. Why would you criticize me if my gift is faith and I don't do works? Someone else does works. That's that's their gift. Here's the problem. That's not the question. The question is not about a special gift that someone possesses but the general gift of faith, that foundational faith that makes us a Christ follower. Not that special gift of faith that gives you that extra measure of steadfastness and that, you know these people, the unwavering trust, the unshakable faith. I'm I'm married to one of those. I've seen it. This becomes clear in the allusion to the demons. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons know there is a God. Demons know who Jesus is. I refer you to Luke 4. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons believe. They have a faith of sorts. Yet they continue as demons. They are not saved. They do not know peace with God. They do not love God the God whom they actually confess. The faith that we are discussing is the faith that James is is talking about is that foundational faith that saves. It's a faith that acknowledges that I have rebelled against a holy God, that admits that I am a sinner in need of grace, that I am incapable of my own volition and effort to rectify this separated state from God. It's a faith that must be placed in a Savior. A Savior who, of his own accord, stepped out of heaven and walked among us. God with us. And this faith must respond to that grace in a manner that distinguishes me from those without faith. This faith recognizes that my reconciliation to my Father in heaven has been completely and utterly accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. That's the faith we're talking about. We return to our question. How can we be sure that our faith is a fully true faith, that we really do have peace with God? There must be some way. There must be some indication, some certainty. And James alludes to this when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. We started with Rahab. Faith in action, sacrificially meeting the needs of other. The remainder of our answer comes from Abraham. Most of you know the story, yes? Abraham is promised an heir from which there would be produced an abundance of descendants, more than come out of a minivan in the parking lot. Just thought I'd tie that back, never mind. Because of his age and Sarah's age, This is humanly impossible. It can only happen by divine intervention. Abraham trusted God, had faith in God. Okay, I know, there was the incident with Hagar where he tried to take matters into his own hands, but he recovered. Sarah had Isaac. But then Abraham was called by God to be tested. And this time, there was no doubt. No wavering. God promised to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham depended on this boy, Isaac, and Abraham was called to sacrifice him. Genesis 22.5, and this is from the NIV translation because it works better for me. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship And then we will come back. You see the problem? Between the second and the third, we, Abraham must wield the knife, thrust it into his son, and then burn him on the altar. Yet he says, we, my son and I, will be back. How can he do that? The Hebrews author explains it to us centuries later, when he says this: By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he had received the promises, when he when he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named," he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from from which, figuratively speaking, he he did receive him back. Imagine Abraham. The Lord had given him that son, the son through whom a nation of descendants would would come. But he's called Abraham to sacrifice this son. A knife, an altar, fire. Abraham has every intention of doing exactly what the Lord has asked. Yet, by clear implication of what Abraham said in Genesis, and through the revelation of the Hebrew's author, Abraham expects that his God will restore his son to him. That's faith. That's exactly what it looks like. So what does James say about this? James says he proposes that Abraham was justified by works and the specific work that brought justification was the offering of his son. Now, before we can start asking theological questions, whoa, 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 wait, James. Justification by works? Whoa, whoa. James says, you see, you see. Faith was active along with works. Faith promotes works. Works are not exercised by themselves. Faith cooperates with works. And then what does James say? Faith was completed by works. The activity of works causes faith to mature. The example of Abraham tells us that faith precedes works. Abraham did not take his son up that mountain saying to himself, boy, I sure hope this works out. His words tell us he had absolute faith that both he and the boy would return from the mountain. James is not proposing a different way of salvation. He is, wants us to understand what by faith alone means. A saving faith results in a distinctive life, a different life. A life that separates us, that makes us stand out from our culture. Hebrews 6 expands on this. The Hebrews author says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. There are things that belong to salvation. The Hebrews author says your work, the love that you have shown, earnestness, being imitators of those in the faith. James just says works. He packs it all into one word. That that word indicates that we should be distinctive because we believe. Listen carefully. James is not arguing for faith instead of works. He's not arguing for works instead of faith. He's not arguing for works above faith. He is not even arguing for faith and works. James is advocating a faith which possesses works. And he says so in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have, if it does not possess works, is dead. A true faith produces results. And in particular, the results of a costly and wholly trustful obedience. Isn't that what Abraham did? Costly, and trustful obedience. So by using both Abraham and Rahab, James is indicating a comprehensiveness to this idea of faith. It's all of us. Every follower of Christ. How does he do that? Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, besides Jesus, may be the major biblical figure. Rahab, part of a chapter in Joshua. Joshua. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Rahab, a Canaanite, a foreigner. Abraham, the respected. Rahab, the disreputable. Abraham, the man. Rahab, the woman. James is making a comprehensive statement about all who are among the faithful. Back to our beginning statement. All who claim faith. Faith produces works. What is faith? Faith is a belief that produces results. And in our examples from James, we, knew, note, we learned two directions. We learned from Abraham that faith results in obedience to God and his word, and we learn from Ahab that faith results in caring for one another. That is what faith is. Abraham and Rahab are good examples. But as we move now into our time of communion, uh, we have an even better example. There is one who demonstrated perfect obedience to the Father in the garden. Not my will, but your will. He also demonstrated perfect sacrificial meeting of need, our deepest need. Our deepest need to be reconciled to the Father, and that's Christ our Lord. And at this time every week, we pause to reflect on that to reflect on the word that was presented today to allow God's word to seep into our souls and transform us. We remember the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. This time of communion is for believers. If you have not yet accepted Christ, I urge you to... uh Meditate on the message today. If you have questions, I'll be in the back. We'll have prayer responders around the corner uh, in the gym. Here at Redeemer, we take communion by breaking off a piece of the bread and dipping it into one of the two cups. We have juice and wine as your conscience leads you. We also have a gluten-free option up front. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that that your word can can penetrate uh, the heart even through heat and perspiration. Uh, Father, we ask that we embrace uh, what you have told us in your word about it, what it means to be yours, what it means to have faith, what it means to put our, 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 our lives in the hands of your son, uh, that it produces results, that there is action, that we care for others, that, that we are knowledgeable and obedient to you and your word. Uh, Father, may this word just lead us the rest of the day and the rest of the week Uh, may we respond in a manner that is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.